Welcome, by the way, my name's Scott, I'm the lead pastor here at the Bridge. I'm so glad you guys are here for week four of our Joyride series. And, uh, you know, I've noticed that there really are two kinds of people in the world. Two kinds of people. You have dog lovers and cat lovers, right? How many of you are dog lovers? Just raise your hand. Yeah, there's God's people. How many of you are cat lovers? Okay, see, please just exit the building right over here kindly. Yeah, two kinds of people, right? Now, I've noticed really that uh, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are In-N-Out Burger people, and there are true Texan water burger people. You know what I'm saying? Any, any In-N-Out Burger people, California people, West Coast. Yeah, water burger, okay. No, but I have noticed no, there are two kinds of people really in the world, and those are people that check their emails consistently, and they get rid of the little bubbles that's sitting there, you know, and they're those that don't, right? Some of you have thousands of little numbers there waiting for you to check, and you're wonder, people are wondering, did they die? What happened? I've never heard back. That's because they still have a bunch there on that bubble. So yeah, two kinds of people in the world, right? There are people that actually set one alarm and wake up to the one alarm. And there are people that set several alarms to make sure that you wake up to the alarm that you are supposed to have woken up to the other alarm, but now this alarm will help that other third alarm. And so you just set a bunch of them, right? Some of you know that. You laugh because that's you, right? That's alarming. It is alarming. There are two kinds of people in the world, though, and I've noticed. Maybe you've noticed as well. There are half-empty glass people and half-full glass people. The half-full glass people, I mean, you, you, you've noticed them. You've been around them before. They're some of the happiest people, seem to be some of the happiest people in the world, some of the most joy-filled people in the world. You just love being around them. Uh, their outlook on life and their outlook on the future is incredible. Uh, they seem to have this kind of a genuine kind of faith, not, not like a fake kind of thing, but a genuine faith uh, that life is, is, is great, that God is at work, um, their future looks bright, and you just like being around. I mean, they're just the kind of people that you wish you could just hang out with all day because their, their optimism and their joy is just infectious. And, and then you, you've been around some of the other people, those that are like half empty, and they seem to be the most um, joy-challenged people in the world, right? Because there's always something wrong, and they seem to be bitter they seem to complain about a lot of things in life and, and maybe I mean we, we all probably have been around some like that and you could probably picture in your mind who that is right now don't look at them don't like see some of you looking at them. don't look at them that I just made some of you nervous because you're like I'm thinking about them I hope they don't see that I'm thinking about them yeah we've all been around some of those people right and we tend to think that if I'm around that kind of person that they would just suck the joy out of me that, that, that they're like these joy suckers, right? I mean, they just go around just sucking the joy and the life out of every room and out of every person they come in contact with. And a lot of times we feel like 
my lack of joy, especially depending on how close that person is to you, that my lack of joy is because of this person in my life. And today we're going to talk about what really does suck the joy out of our life. And it's probably not that person. It's probably, you're probably going to be surprised at actually who it is or what it is that tends to just suck the joy out of your life. Now, we've been talking about, for the last two or three weeks, we've been talking about this letter written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Christians in the, in the first century. And these are people in the ancient city of Philippi, which was in Greece. And he had been there about 10 years prior. And he had influenced, led these people to Christ. They had become Christ followers. They formed together a church. And it was the church there at Philippi. And this is like 10 years later, he's writing back to them this letter and he's giving them instructions and encouragement about how to live a life that's characterized by joy. So we know this, this book or this letter in the Bible as the book of Philippians. And we've been talking through this uh, the last few weeks about how can we live the kind of life that looks like a joy ride every day of our life. Now, understanding the setting of this book is really important. And you have to know because of what the content of the book is and how he's writing about joy, you have to really know what's going into this. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, he had actually traveled to Jerusalem. And while there in Jerusalem, he had gone to the temple to talk to people about Jesus. Well, that made the religious leaders pretty upset. And so as they got more and more upset, they decided to drag Paul out of the temple. They began beating him. Their intent was to beat him to death. Fortunately, someone was around and called 911. And, and, you know, 911 would mean the Roman authorities because at that particular time, the one world superpower was the Roman Empire. And at the top of that empire was a guy named Nero. And so when you call 911, that's the Roman authorities, the Roman soldiers that are going to come onto the scene. And so sure enough, you know, Roman soldiers show up, bad boy, bad boy, what you going to do? So they show up, they begin, <laughs> they begin sorting out everything. And they realize that this guy named Paul is the catalyst behind this whole skirmish that's going down. So they decide to arrest him, throw him into jail. And then Paul looks at him and simply says, is this what you would normally do to a Roman citizen? Well, now they got a problem. We talked a little bit about this last week because as a Roman citizen, you had certain rights. One of those was due process. You couldn't just take a Roman citizen and throw them into jail. And so now they're like, Rome, we got a problem. What do we do with this guy? He's in jail there in Jerusalem for a couple of years. And they finally ship him off to Rome. Well, on the way, storm comes up. They shipwrecked, stranded on this island. He gets bitten by a poisonous snake but survives. It's turning out not to be a good couple of years for this guy, okay? He eventually makes it to Rome where he is locked into another prison. And in this particular prison, he's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. He's there for about three years. And after somewhere around three to four years, he's taken outside of the city gates. And he's beheaded. And that ended the life of the person we know as the Apostle Paul. But in the time period that he was locked in this Roman prison, he wrote several letters. And one of them is this letter to this group of Philippian believers 
that tells us all about joy and how to live a life that's characterized by true joy, which is really just amazing because here is a guy that is going through it. I mean, he's been falsely arrested and imprisoned. He's been beaten up, left for dead, shipwrecked, and is eventually going to be executed. And yet, in all of those circumstances, he can write, here's how you have true joy. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about it. And his letters still impact our lives. And yet, at the time, Nero was the biggest thing in the world. And Nero was actually responsible for killing Paul. Yet, cathedrals and people's sons are named after Paul. And we name our dogs Nero. It just speaks to the legacy of a man who was willing to be used by God. And was willing to understand and incorporate joy in the middle of all kinds of difficult circumstances and problems. And so we've been talking about this for the last three weeks. Now, if you haven't been here uh, or if you've missed any of them, I encourage you to go uh, listen to them, to catch up. You can find those on our website, thebridge.me slash messages, and you can find all the messages we've done there. And I encourage you to go back and listen and, and, and see where we've been. Uh, but today we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and that's in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12, and here's what it says, starting in verse 12. It says, therefore, now we said this last week, but anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to ask a question. What's it? Therefore, yes, thank you. What's it there for, front row people? Uh, yeah, um, so you always say, what's it there for? So you can go back and look, what is the context? What, what's happening here? And what we were learning last week is that there was this system, a hierarchy from all, the royals all the way down to slaves, and that you wanted to be at the top, anybody down on the bottom, it was just bad. And Jesus came along and he said, I'm going to be a servant of all. I'm going to sacrificially lay my life down for all of humanity. That includes you. That includes me. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done and because of the example that he is for us, he goes on, he says, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. Now that, you know, sometimes you look at that and you go, what, what, what does that mean, right? I mean, does that mean that I'm supposed to do things like to earn my salvation? Like I'm supposed to do things to try to please God so that he'll be happy with me. I mean, is that called working out my salvation? And here's what you got to understand. The phrase is work out, not work for. Work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. See, um, Paul is writing, and we've said this from the very beginning, Paul is writing to people who are already Christ followers. He's writing to a group of Christians. And so he's not writing to them about here's how you become a Christ follower. Here's how... You open up your life and establish a relationship with Jesus. He's working off the assumption that you already have that relationship with Jesus. So now when he's talking about working out salvation, he's not talking about trying to earn something. They already have salvation. He's talking about working in this salvation, working as a part of the process. And the Bible is really, really clear on this subject. 
that, that salvation is a work of God's. It is all on his shoulders. It is all based on this word called grace. And, and there's nothing that we can ever do to earn any part of that salvation. It's all based on what he has done for us, what he's given to us. And all we can do is partner with him in that process. But there's nothing we can do to earn it. Salvation happens in an instant. Transformation happens over a lifetime. Our salvation, the moment we say yes to Jesus, salvation happens that quickly. Our yes in faith prompts God to act immediately. And our salvation is set that moment. It can't be taken from us. It is solidified. And the Bible says that God puts his own spirit inside of us as a guarantee to the promise that we have in him. So there's nothing that can be, uh, he cannot be removed. He's moved in, all right? And he will not be ousted, all right? So we, once we receive Christ, that salvation is in an instant. But transformation, our life being changed. And what we've been learning over the last couple of weeks is that salvation, this thing that Jesus is doing, it's an inside out kind of thing. That he moves into our life and begins changing us inwardly. And it begins working its way to the outside. It's a transformation that happens over a lifetime, over a long period of time where you just are changed. And if you look back on your life, you've been a believer for any number of years, you look back on where you began and hopefully you see that your life has changed. Hopefully it's changed for the better. Uh, we talked about the very first week where uh, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, here's what Paul said. He said, being confident in this, that he, that being God, who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He's the one that will complete it. It's not your responsibility to complete it. It's not my responsibility to complete it. He said, I started a work in you. He said, what, here's what that means. That, that God is working around you through the people in your life, through the circumstances in your life, bringing you to a place where your heart and life is open to receiving Jesus as your Savior. And the moment you say yes to Jesus being your Savior, God begins to work in you. And God begins to perfect and transform inside of you, working from the inside out. God is at work in you, and he will carry that work on to completion. Now, what that means is that should be good news for some. It should be great news for some. Like if you're kind of in that place where you're still checking out the whole God thing and you're still not sure about it and you're thinking, you know, I don't know, man, I, I got a lot of junk in my life. And, you know, once I get some of these things figured out, then maybe, yes, I'll, I'll come around. But I've got just a lot of stuff. Listen, you can come right now. You don't have to wait because there's nothing you can do to ever get your life into some position or some right standing with God before you receive Christ. That work begins the moment you say yes to Christ. If you're sitting around saying, you know, I, I'm trying to stockpile some good deeds over here so I can finally feel like I'm good enough to come and hang out with church people and hang out with God and stuff like that. Well, listen, you don't have to wait because if you've been doing that, you're probably better off than we are because we're all jacked up, right? So you, I mean, you don't have to wait. We're just about, here, the reality is we're just a bunch of broken people that have experienced the grace of God. And he began a work in us, and he promises to carry that work on to completion. That, that phrase, that word, uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, 
And in that original language of Greek, that word completion, it's, it's, the, it's the idea of like mining a gold mine. And so what, what the, the picture is that God is at work continually mining, trying to bring out every ounce of gold that's within us. And he mines out all the bad stuff and he discards it. And he continues to work and to mold and to shape all of the things that are gold within us. It is a process that he is committed to completing. And he will not stop. He will not give up. Even when we give up. Even when we stand, you know, we kind of walk away for a period of time and say, you know, God, I'm done for a while. I might come back, but not right now. God is still working. He's still processing. He's still mining. And he will bring that to completion in your life. He will never, ever give up that process. And so Paul says he, he is working in you. And so as a part of that process, we are to work with him as we work out our salvation. That we want to partner with him. We want to be open to him. We want to be at the place where we're able to let God speak into our heart. And the moment he says, hey, I want you to do this or I want you to not do that. And we're responding because that's part of that process. That's working out that salvation. He goes on in, verse, in the next verse, he says this, in verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That God has an incredible purpose and plan for your life. And it's not just that you would be a good person. Because <laughs> see, that's what we think sometimes, right? We think that church and God, it, it, all these things are just so that I'll be a better person or I'll be a good person. And so what that does, it winds up filling our life up with all these shoulds. Well, I know I should. Well, I know I should do this. Well, I know I should do that. Well, I know I should never go here. And I know I should never be a part of that. I should, I should, I should, I should. And before long, we're shoulding all over ourselves, right? I really practiced that line a long time. (laughs) To make sure it came out right. But that's true, right? Because we have this thought that that's what our life is supposed to be about. I'm supposed to just become a good, good person. And so I'm filled with all of these things that I should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And God is like, that's not the gospel. I came into your life to begin a mining process and I'm bringing gold out of your life and I'm committed to that process because I have a purpose for your life. And it's so much greater than just being a good person. I have a plan for how I want to use your life and how I want your life to impact the people around you. And now he's about to make a transition. It seems like a transition, but it's all in the same context of him working in your life and and processing things in your life. And he reaches this place that says, Here's the one thing, though, that will sabotage God's work in your life, that will sabotage the joy in your life. And not only that, it will become a cancer to everybody around you. It's the one thing, and it's not the person you think. It's not this joy sucker in your life. It's not this, you know, glass half empty person in your life. It's not your boss. It's not your, you know, your in-laws it's not your spouse it's not your neighbor he says the one person that can really sabotage what God wants to do and really kill the joy in your life 
is you. And in my life, it's me. And here's the way he connects it. In the next verse, verse 14, he says this. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. It's like that doesn't even fit in what he's saying, right? He's like, you know, therefore continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As God is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So we want you to do these things. And, and so as a part of that, make sure that you're in church every week. Or, you know, make sure that you're reading the Bible every day and praying every day. Because those are the ways that you're going to work out your salvation. And God is going to work the process in your life. But no, he says... Do everything without arguing and complaining. It, it doesn't even seem to fit. He, he, he's, saying, he's saying, listen, I know you're thinking. I, you're thinking that the, the way to really see God work in my life and the way to really be used by God is for me to do all these over, things over here and be involved in all these Bible studies and, and praying and all these things. And I know that's what you're thinking, but Paul says, it's not. In fact, if you want to see God work in your life, you want to see the joy in your life just grow exponentially, and if you want to make a difference in this world, then shut your pie hole. Quit complaining and arguing all the time about your life and about your problems. That's the way, that's the path to experience joy. That's the path to make a difference in this world. Stop arguing and complaining and grumbling. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't take a stand for things. It doesn't mean that, you know, you don't, there, there are times that you have to draw a line in the sand and say, this is not right and this is not going to happen any longer. He's not addressing that. There are those times we must do that. What he's talking about, that word grumbling, it, 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 it's a spirit of ingratitude. It's going from having a critical eye, and a critical eye can be good. A critical eye can see what's going on and point out some things that need to be worked on. But it's going from having a critical eye to a critical spirit where everything is wrong. And everything is worthy of your complaints. And he said that, that spirit, that grumbling comes from this spirit of ingratitude. Where you can't see the good things in your life because of all the things you're focused on that are not going the way you want them to go. He said, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And he continues on. He says, so that, well, here's the reason that you want to do everything without grumbling or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Huh? Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you become blameless and pure? Doesn't make sense. I mean, wouldn't it be, you know, make sure that, like we've been saying, make sure that you are reading the scripture. Make sure that you're praying. Make sure that you're in a small group so that you remain blameless and pure. That's not what he says. He says the pathway to remaining blameless and pure is by stopping your complaining and grumbling and arguing. In that way, you stand above the fray. In that way, you don't get caught up in all the minutiae and all the things that will drag you down and deteriorate or destroy the joy in your life. 
Do everything so that you can be blameless and pure. And then, then check out what he says here. It goes to verse 15. He says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. He says, the more that you stay away from grumbling and arguing and complaining and griping, the more you stand out in this world like stars in the sky. And isn't that kind of true? I mean, don't we know that? Because don't we hear and see enough grumbling and complaining? It seems like, especially among Christians, I mean, what, what would happen? What would happen? Here's a crazy thought now. What would happen if we decided as Christians to no longer argue, complain, and grumble on social media about everything under the sun? You understand that most Christians are known for what they're against as opposed to what they're for, right? And I don't know how we get that kind of rap. But we're known for that. What would happen if, if we just stopped doing that? See, I think according to what Paul is saying is that people would be drawn to us. People would, would want to know, what's up with you? Why aren't you complaining? Where is this joy coming from? What is up with you? They will be drawn to us. When you read the Gospels, the life of Christ... Have you ever noticed the kind of people that were drawn to Jesus? See, I think churches are good about figuring out what the mission of Jesus was when he came to this earth. He was to seek and to save the lost. He died for us. That was the mission. Most churches are pretty good about figuring that out. We struggle with the personality of Jesus. We got the mission down. But we struggle with the personality of Jesus. There was something about the personality of Jesus where the people that were least like him, liked him. The people that everybody else considered the worst sinners wanted to hang out with him constantly. The only people that didn't want to hang out with him were the religious leaders. So how is it that God in a body, God with skin on it, can come into this world and the people that wants to hang out with God are the people with all kinds of baggage, issues, problems, guilt, regret, shame. But the people who would be considered most close to God are the ones who didn't want to hang out with him at all. I just think there's something there that we need to learn about the personality of Jesus. That the more that we live in this world not complaining, not griping, not being against everything, the more we might reflect the spirit of who Jesus is. Because see, as Christians, our role is to be like Christ. That's the whole idea of the word Christian. We are little Christ. We are like Christ. And so for us to live in such a way like he did where, man, I'm, he was invited constantly 
to parties, to hang out with these people that, that were nothing like him. That has to speak to us in some way about the way we live. The more we act like Jesus, I think, the more people will be drawn to us just like they were drawn to him. And the more they will see a contagious kind of joy that they'll want to know more about. You will shine like stars in the sky. You will stand out in this world. And people will be drawn to it. Just like they were drawn to Jesus. He goes on. He, he wraps up right here in verse 17 and 18. He says, But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He said, even if my life is, is nothing but just being poured out, poured out for you. So, so I, Jesus gave his life for me. I've given my life back to him. And if I'm just being poured out for you, then I'm good with it. I'm good with it because I understand my responsibility. My responsibility is to take what I have and to pour into you. That's it. I'm not responsible for what you do with it. I'm just responsible to take what I have and pour into you. And the way that applies to us is that God looks at us and he says, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to pour your life into other people. You're not responsible for what they do with it. But you are responsible for pouring your life into another person. And see where we get in trouble with this. And this is where I would get in trouble with it. Is that we take this mindset that says, I am to pour my life into another person in an attempt to perfect or complete that person. And so if I'm not seeing that happening, if they're not perfecting and completing, then I feel like I'm not doing my job. And as a pastor, I'm telling you, this has been a struggle since really day one, I guess. Because I will study and I will work and I will try to put together something that I hope will be able to pour into your life. And then along the way, people will come and say, I just need to get more out of those messages. And so I go back and study more and try to, you know, Find better things to come and, and say. And then somebody else say, I just need more. I just need more. And I began to understand that it was never my responsibility to complete or perfect you. It was only my responsibility to pour into you what I have. Because I can never complete or perfect you anyway. And you can never complete or perfect anybody else. Jesus is the only person that can do that. And so it's not your responsibility to ever think about I've got to complete or perfect or they, I've got to pour it out in such a way that they get it and they do something with it and all those kinds of things. No, 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 no. That's not your responsibility. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul says, listen, I know my role. And my role is to pour out into you what I have. I'm just to empty my cup. I can never be responsible for what you do with that. That is your role and that's God's role in your life. All my role is to pour and empty my cup into you. And because of that, I can rejoice. As I do that, as I faithfully do that, I can rejoice. And so that is your role. That's my role. If you're a Christ follower here today. It's to take what God has given you and to pour into somebody else. To empty your cup. You say, well, I don't know that I have all that much. Well, if you have anything in your cup, there's something that can be poured into somebody else. 
I don't know, you know, if they'll listen to me. Not your responsibility. Your responsibility is just to take what you have and pour it into another life. Well, I don't know who that would be. Well, there are people all around you, I'm sure, that would love to have you pour into their life. But if you can't think of anybody, we have a children's ministry and a student ministry that would love for you to pour what you have into their lives, into the next generation of children and students that are coming along and make a real difference in their lives. You might have a neighbor, you might have a coworker. And regardless of what you think about them and whether they would want you to do these things, I promise you there's somebody around you that would love for you to take what you have and to pour it into their life. And allow God to use that as he chooses. Paul says, he gave his life for me. He poured out his life for me. My life has changed because of it. And now I'm responsible for taking what I have and pouring it into another. It's not my responsibility what you do with it. It's just my responsibility to pour what I have into your life. And now after I've done that, I can sit back and rejoice. Because I've done what God has asked me to do. It, it leads us to our, our, really our bottom line, our joy principle. And it's this. Joy cannot coexist with grumbling and arguing. It just can't. And if you're joy deprived right now, you might just look and see, is there any area where I've allowed the spirit of grumbling to take over? I've been complaining and arguing a lot here lately. And maybe that's where my joy has been depleted. But it cannot coexist with grumbling and arguing. Let me give you three equations, okay, as we wrap up. Number one, entitlement leads to grumbling and arguing. When we sit back and say, well, I deserve this. Well, I've been doing this. Somebody ought to show me love over here. I need this. It's my right. I, ha- I, I want this. I need to be taken care of. This sense of entitlement of what we deserve, what we should get, what we expect, that sense of entitlement begins to lead to grumbling and arguing, especially when those things are not happening in our life. And we begin to get this spirit of ingratitude about us. It leads to grumbling and arguing. But the next equation is this. Grumbling and arguing leads to misery. And you know this. You've been around people. That all they do is grumble and argue and complain. And they're miserable. They're making you miserable. And then you complain about it, right? I mean, it's like, you know, you've seen this happen in other people. And sometimes it's easier to see in other people than it is to see in our own lives. But it will happen every single time. When there's grumbling and arguing, it will lead to a miserable existence that lacks joy. And so what do we do? What's the alternative? Well, here's the alternative. Gratitude and giving leads to joy. Gratitude and giving leads to joy. In other words, instead of focusing on all the things that you don't have and the things that you're not getting and what 
is going wrong or what could go wrong or what will go wrong in the future. You focus on all the things that are going right. And there are plenty of things that are going right in your life for you to be grateful for. If nothing else, the fact that Jesus came and gave his life for you as a payment for your sins. That you can be forgiven. That the debt wiped clean. Guilt removed. Shame removed. He not only died on a cross for your sins and mine, he was raised from the grave and promised to come back and to take us to be with him forever. And that in and of itself, if nothing else ever happened, ought to be enough for you to be grateful and have joy in your life. Gratitude, but then pouring your life out, giving back. Our lives are not meant to be reservoirs. Our lives are meant to be rivers. We're meant to be a conduit. God pours blessing, we pour it out to others. The moment we start damming things up and holding on to it, then we're in trouble. And the perfect example is over in Israel. It's called the Dead Sea. Water goes in, water does not go out, and nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Looks good, but nothing can survive. And that characterizes our life many times. Because we take in and we don't give out. And we become dead and shriveled on the inside, lacking joy. But the moment we decide, I'm going to choose to be grateful for the things that I have in my life. And I'm going to choose to pour my life out into another. Everything changes in that moment. And it leads to a joy ride like you've never experienced But you got to have gratitude and you got to give back. Now, I can tell you that sometimes this is a struggle for me. I, I, I try to be optimistic for the most part. Um, sometimes it's a struggle for me. And there are certain things where it's really a struggle. And I'm just going to be vulnerable with you for a minute, okay? One of those things, and I've talked to our, our people we have partnerships with that, uh, in other countries and stuff. And we go and do uh, mission-type work or short-term mission trips. And I've told them, listen, Americans will come and they will work themselves to death. They will do anything and everything you ask. We just have a short, very, very short list of things that we want. Good food and comfortable sleeping arrangements. If you can do that, we'll give you everything we got. And, and really where that hits home a lot with me and the reason it's kind of a philosophy of mine is because I've been so many times when neither of those were true. And you get to the end of the week and you are fighting hard not to grumble and complain. And, and a few years back, we were, went down to Peru. It was my first time to go down to Peru and went down there with a group of about seven or eight uh, men. And we were uh, going down to a remote village on the Amazon to teach leaders, village leaders. Some of them traveled you know, hours and hours and hours to get there. But to teach them how to go back and lead uh, their churches or, or, or lead people to Christ or lead how, how to develop and, and be able to teach from Scripture. And so we were there teaching, training these, these, these leaders. And so, at the, you know, we get there and, of course, we're all excited about going. We're excited about pouring our lives out into other people. And, 
We get there and we have to take a water taxi, essentially, because everything uh, is on the Amazon. And so if you picture, maybe you've seen in movies or whatever, but kind of a, it's a big, bigger than a canoe, you know, but it's got a thatch roof on top. That's, that's what we were in. And it was kind of nostalgic, you know, it's kind of, oh, yeah, I've seen this in movies. It's kind of fun. Um, but four hours in this thing was not. And, and, um, and half the time we were bailing water. I call, you know, it's funny because uh, there are cell towers everywhere. And so I'm calling my wife from the Amazon saying, hey, babe, listen, I'm on the Amazon and we're bailing water out of our boat. But if I go down, just track this. So come get me, please. Don't leave me in the Amazon stranded, okay? Just come get me. Um, and she's like, why are you calling me and telling me this? You know, this is not good for me. And I said, no, 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 we're fine. We're fine. Just throw those overboard. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but anyway, so, so we're bailing, bailing. You know, we, we finally get there four hours. We finally get to the little place. We're going to the village and we pull up to the little dock there. And as we pull up, I'm, I look next <laughs> on the other side of the dock. And there's a, this big, you know, flat bottom aluminum boat that has bench seats across. You can probably take 15 people in. It's got a big old huge Evan Root on the back. And I said, I asked the guy, and the guy, his name's Brandon. He's actually a partner here at the bridge. He and his family have, have, have become part of the bridge. And I said, Brandon, what, what is that boat for? He said, oh, it's the same kind of thing as this. I said, well, why didn't we have that? And he said, well, it's just more expensive. I said, like, how much more expensive? He said, it's probably going to be another $10 a piece. I said, I'll cover it. I got it, okay? We'll take it going back. We did. It was 45 minutes getting back. So, but we were told, okay, listen, he's gonna, we're going to sleep in this church, okay? And, and they've got rooms there, and they've got brand new mattresses. They're just taking them out of the, the packaging, brand new mattresses, and, and, and I understand what brand new means, and I don't think it really means brand new. And so, it, and it didn't. And so, um, I had fortunately, while we were in the city, I had picked up uh, bed bug spray, and I'm glad I did. Nobody else did, and they were envious because there were bugs all over the mattress. And, and so, but that's, you know, that's not all that bad, I guess. And um, they, they, obviously no AC. Okay, kind of expect that. But, um, but we had a big old fan in the room, all right? That kind of kept the room cool, uh, except it ran on power from the generator, and the generator would turn off from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., um, so the times that you're sleeping. And, and, and at 6 a.m., you could hear, at 10 p.m., you could hear it. Ooh, it's the worst noise in the world. <laughs> and that breeze is gone. And at 6 a.m., you could hear, and for the next 30 minutes, man, we were just getting the best sleep in the world. You know what I'm saying? And, and we had one shower for seven or eight men, but that's, that's fine. I mean, guys don't need much on that way just to get clean, right? It broke on day three. So, and it's in the Amazon, you know, a, you know, chilly 100 degrees. And so um, we were nasty, sweating, last two days, no showers. So yeah, we, we were ripe. And, and, and so it's all of these things, and this whole time I'm going... Do everything without grumbling and complaining. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Do everything. I'm telling myself, it's self-talk all the time going, you know, I'm telling myself this, you know. And, and you know, one, one evening, uh, one of the guys walks by and he has a big, huge tarantula on his back. Oh, and actually, it was a girl that walked by, had it on the back. And this guy was trying to tell her. And his, his Spanish was, was not very good. 
And, you know, he's, he's trying to stop her and she's like looking at him like, you know, you're a creeper. Why are you chasing after me? And he's, he's going, ocho, you know, trying to say it's got eight legs and, and, uh, and she didn't understand. And so then he's slapping her across the back and she's thinking, why are you hitting me? Um, but that was there in our place where we were staying. Um, and they killed an anaconda just, you know, right about uh, 100 yards away. Um, so, but this was a great, a great trip, right? Um, and so all of these things, do everything without grumbling, complaining, do everything right. And it put it to the test big time. But you know, I developed some really good relationships with those guys. Some of them I didn't even know. And I've got great relationships with them today. And we still laugh about all of those things because it made for some great stories. And I began to understand that if we could just be grateful for the things that we have and not completely focus on the things that bother us so much, that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, we can walk away with stories of joy and seeing how God worked and used your life. And you have those times as well. And you have those occasions as well. And as you're walking through difficult circumstances, you're walking through times where all you want to do is grumble and complain. If you can ever just take a step back and say, I want to do everything without grumbling or complaining because I want to be a star in the sky that God uses to draw people so that I can make a difference in this world and that I can live my life with unbelievable joy. If we can do that, I just believe the joy ride will get exponentially better. Let me pray for us, okay?